Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, offering an 11-month MBA program featuring paid internships and a study abroad program. Books included. More at tamusa.edu slash MBA. Dorothy Robinson was back in her home in Palestine, Texas, for the first time since the funeral of her husband, Frank. That's when Dorothy said she saw and spoke to the ghost of her husband. And I don't believe in ghosts either. <laughs> but look, like he came to the hall and stood at the bedroom door and he said, dear, it's a damn lie. And I said, just as plainly as I'm talking to you, I said, you don't need to tell me. I know you didn't kill yourself. Days earlier, on October 14, 1976, Frank J. Robinson's body was found on the floor of their Palestine, Texas garage. There was a shotgun across his legs, and the top of his head was blown away. His body had been there for a full day before it was discovered. The question then, as it is now, did Frank J. Robinson kill himself, or was he murdered? But murdered in such a deliberate way to make it look like a suicide. Why? Perhaps because Robinson was making too much good trouble. Frank used the power of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and he successfully challenged anti-black gerrymandering practices at the county level in Anderson County in East Texas, and he also forced the Palestine City Council to adopt single-member districts. This was the first time since Reconstruction that black voters in East Texas were able to elect their own representatives. East Texas was part of the Old South. This is where Jim Crow was once status quo. This, Palestine, Texas, Anderson County, is part of the Texas where the Confederate flag still is frequently flown. And anyone who empowers black voters and challenges the historic white power structure would be making serious enemies, the kind of enemies who use deadly violence as a tool. And the fear was, this is what happened to Frank J. Robinson, that he was murdered, that it was covered up. According to Dorothy, Frank J. Robinson wasn't worried about the threats that he would frequently receive. There would be anonymous phone calls to the Robinson home, and she told an interviewer in 1995 that Frank would brush them off. After he died, the question was asked me quite frequently by lawyers and policemen and whatnot if I had any inkling that he had been threatened, or if, if he indicated in any way that he had been. And the next question was, would he have told me had he been threatened? And I said, yes, I believe he would. But on second thought, he probably wouldn't, because he would not have wanted to worry me. But if he had an inkling, I don't know it. But he, have said, he said these words many, many, many times. He'd say, girl, if they kill me now, they haven't done anything but killed an old man because I've done just about all I can do. Now, that may have been his way of, say, of letting me know that he did have some fears. And Dorothy said Frank knew there was going to be a cost one day to changing things, and that cost would be paid in blood. And if he had to do it all over again, he would do it. That was, he was just that dedicated. And so often he would say, change is always painful. And he'd say, but what is a little bloodshed? Because it takes that to get, he said, my, and these are his words, my blood or yours or anybody's. He said, blood change a lot of times result in bloodshed. And he'd go back 
Jesus Christ. He'd go right back. He was a very religious person. When he died, Frank J. Robinson was an established and well-known voting rights advocate and political leader in East Texas. A murdered Frank J. Robinson would have created a martyr for the cause, like Medgar Evers, who in 1963 was leading a campaign for integration in Jackson, Mississippi, when he was shot and killed by a sniper at his home. A martyred Frank J. Robinson would have created an even bigger set of problems for those who opposed protecting voting rights. But if Frank J. Robinson, who was murdered in a way to make it look like a suicide, well, that was something else. That could solve a lot of problems for the people who don't want the political empowerment of the black community in East Texas. And if that is the case, if there are people who plotted to kill Frank J. Robinson, then they didn't count on Dorothy. Dorothy, who saw her husband's ghost and never believed anything but that he was murdered. And I was wide awake when I made that response. And looked like he was standing just as plainly. And then after he said, it's a damn lie. And I said, you don't have to tell me. I know you didn't kill yourself. He just faded, just faded back. He didn't come forward. I didn't see any movement of arms or legs. Like he just faded back in the scene. This is The Ghost of Frank J. Robinson, a podcast from Texas Public Radio. Episode 2, The Making of a Mystery. Who was Frank J. Robinson and why would anyone want to murder him? I'm David Martin Davies. I first heard about Frank J. Robinson in 2015 when I was reporting on the Slocum Massacre. In 1910, a white community in Anderson County near Palestine attacked the black community of Slocum. It's impossible to know exactly how many people were killed. Uh, there are estimates of about 20. Some say it's 10 times that. The survivors were driven off their land, which was then stolen. I reported on how the state of Texas refused to acknowledge that the Slocum massacre had actually happened and the efforts by descendants to change that. Here's a story that I produced about that struggle. It aired on NPR January 15, 2016. Books and films have told the stories of the Rosewood Massacre and the Tulsa Race Riot, two attacks on black communities by white mobs in the 1920s. There's far less information about a similar incident in East Texas known as the Slocum Massacre. For years, the victims' descendants have fought for recognition in the form of a historical marker. As Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies reports, it will finally be unveiled tomorrow. Sadler Creek still meanders through Anderson County in the backwoods of East Texas, just as it did in July 1910. That's when three African-American teenagers walked down a dirt road and crossed paths with a group of white men. Without warning, the men opened fire, beginning the Slocum Massacre. I think it was terrifying. Constance Holly Wade is a descendant of a Slocum survivor. Her great-great-grandfather was Jack Holly. He had risen from being a freed slave to a successful businessman. I think it was probably the scariest day of my great-great-grandfather's life. Mass hysteria gripped the community. For 48 hours, packs of armed white men combed the area shooting black people until Sheriff William H. Black arrived. According to a report he wrote afterwards, every black victim was unarmed and most were shot in the back. There is no official number. E.R. Bills is the author of The Slocum Massacre, an act of genocide in East Texas. He said it's not clear how many died. The newspaper reports originally suggested 
two dozen. Um, eventually, when there were indictments handed down, they were for seven. But the sheriff of the day said that uh, most of the bodies would be found by the buzzards. There were too many. They were everywhere. Constance Holly Wade says about 200 were killed and that a cover-up began not long after the shooting stopped, a cover-up that has continued for decades. There was no race riot to start with. It was just personal things between the blacks and the whites. Jimmy Ray Odom is a longtime chairman of the Anderson County Historic Commission. Over the years, he blocked any recognition of what happened in Slocum, mainly because of disagreements. The Slocum massacre, the newspaper accounts, when you put them all together and read every one of them, they differ on everything that happened. But descendants of the Slocum massacre say, so what? Lee Craven says there's a double standard for what's history, especially in the South. If you have the Confederacy hoo-ha-ha, brouhaha, hooray, then there is the other side of it in which people were oppressed and all these awful things happened to them. What about their voices? And that's the balance that's been missing in so much of our history, not just East Texas history, American history. Calicia Holly-Williams says that needs to change. One of her relatives died in the massacre. We're not trying to stir the pot, per se, but all we're trying to do is bring awareness to what happened and justice. That's finally happening. Over the objections of Anderson County, last year the Texas State Historic Commission approved a historic marker for the Slocum Massacre. The dedication is this weekend. For NPR News, I'm David Martin Davies. So while working on the stories that I published about the Slocum Massacre, I was running around Anderson County and asking questions that some people didn't like. This was a history that some in Palestine and Anderson County in East Texas didn't want remembered, and I was told to be careful. I was told, you don't want to end up like Frank J. Robinson. Now, that wasn't a threat, but more of a warning, and the implication was that there are people in East Texas who are dangerous. And when you report on race and politics in a particular way, in a way they don't like, things can go bad for you. Whether or not that's true is actually academic. But the chilling effect that this causes is true, it's real. The fear that there are bad people, racist in East Texas, who will kill you and that the system will protect them, that fear is palpable. Nevertheless, at the time, I didn't know who Frank J. Robinson was, but I decided I was going to find out. The people of Palestine who remembered Frank J. Robinson Remember him as a fearless man that fought for voting rights. But that fearless nature that he had might have gotten him killed. And the people who may have done it got away with it. And that's enough to put a lid on efforts to shake things up. And that, to me, is the real ghost of Frank J. Robinson. His specter is a haunting threat of anti-black violence that lives in the zone of uncertainty between was he murdered or did he kill himself. You don't want to end up like Frank J. Robinson. That grabbed my attention, and I began to start digging little by little into the story. This was over the course of years, and I would work on it in the background while reporting on other stories and then be compelled to come back to it. That's the way it is when you're a reporter. You're haunted by some stories. You might push them aside and deal with breaking news, another election cycle, another mass shooting, a pandemic. And then once there's a quiet moment, 
You'll be jolted as if by a lightning bolt in the middle of the night, demanding your attention. You get a combination of panic, excitement, and shame simultaneously. Don't forget about Frank J. Robinson, that conscience of journalism scolds you. You feel possessed to uncover the truth, drag it out into the light, into the land of the living. So over the past couple of years, I've been putting more focus onto the story. I sent out a batch of open records requests. I've made drives into East Texas. I've bugged people while looking for answers, and I found some. Here's what I got. I'm going to be honest with you. It's a big I don't know. If you want a clean, definitive answer, I'm not going to be able to give that to you. But I'm still digging, and new information will be uncovered as this podcast rolls out. But listener, here's the deal. I'm not going to waste your time making you think you're going to end up with a nice, clean answer at the end of this. I'm not going to waste your time taking you down to pointless rabbit holes and then have nothing to show for it. Right now, up front, I'm telling you, I cannot tell you if Frank J. Robinson killed himself or if he was murdered. However, I can tell you, so much of that suicide explanation does not make sense. And we're going to get into that. And there were problems that popped up while reporting on this story that make me wonder if there was a cover-up, which is something else I'm going to have to tell you about. But here's what I want to accomplish with this podcast. The official cause of death for Frank J. Robinson is suicide. But there are many, many problems with that assessment, and I argue it should be changed to undetermined. And my other goal for this podcast is to raise the profile Frank J. Robinson and what he accomplished. And I think because of the stigma of suicide, Frank's victories for voting rights have been muted, if not outright ignored. Highlighting Frank's accomplishments are particularly important now, as the already gutted 1965 Voting Rights Act has been weakened even more by a conservative activist U.S. Supreme Court. Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, now offering multiple graduate programs like the 11-month MBA, the fully online Master of Science in Criminology and Criminal Justice, and many more. Learn more at becomeajaguar.com. Frank J. Robinson is a voting rights hero, and he should be remembered as such. But of course, he's not the only one. There are many. And here's another one that I'd like to spotlight. Uh, David Richards, I'm a lawyer in Austin, Texas, and I represented Frank Robinson in a civil rights, voting rights case over in East Texas a number of years ago. I mean, <laughs> I can't even remember how long ago now. Dave Richards was the attorney for Robinson and two other plaintiffs, Tim Smith and Rodney Howard, in the case Robinson v. County Commissioners, Anderson County. Richards is the former husband of Texas Governor Ann Richards, and in the 1970s, he was working for the ACLU, and he was looking to shake things up in East Texas. We had won a case in the U.S. Supreme Court on creating single-member districts for the Texas legislature, a case called White versus Register. And I got the idea after that case, thinking about that in East Texas, there were a significant number of concentrations of black Americans and no no office holder, none. I guess it's the statute of limitations is running, so I don't know whether I was improperly promoting litigation, but what I did was I identified the counties in East Texas 
there where the African American or black population was 25% or more and identified oh, several counties. And of course, Wayne Justice is one of those people. If you file something, you better get ready to go. So I filed Nacogdoches and uh, Anderson County. He put me to trial in Nacogdoches almost immediately. We won that case, and then we went to trial in Anderson County. Frank Robinson was my principal. He was principal plaintiff and principal witness in the case. We won there also. Let me unpack some of that. After the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, black voters were going to the polls in record numbers that made many in Anderson County uncomfortable. The county commissioners responded in 1969 by redrawing the county commissioner's district precincts in such a way that it divided the black voters into three different precincts. This diluted the voting power of the black community to the point that they had no representation on the commissioner's court, despite being 25% of the county's population. So Frank J. Robinson brought the lawsuit with the help of Dave Richards, and Anderson County fought back. They fought back hard with the hiring of outside lawyers and pulling out all of the stops. On March 15, 1974, Judge Justice concluded that Anderson County had engaged in race-based gerrymandering. Richards and Robinson had won. But Anderson County didn't give up. They appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and also they appealed to the governor and the attorney general for intercession, but to no avail, they lost again. From the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Irving Goldberg wrote the opinion that took Anderson County to the woodshed. He wrote, unfortunately, the disrespect for voting rights is not a recent innovation in county government in Texas. He wrote, Caesar found Gaul divided into three parts. Here we are confronted with a county commissioner's court, which has cut the county's black community into three illogical parts in order to dilute the black vote in precinct elections, acting as a modern Caesar. Such apportionment poisons our representative democracy at its roots. Our Constitution cannot abide it. When I first started chasing the story of Frank J. Robinson, Dave Richards was the first person that I called on and that I interviewed simply because I was elated that he was still alive. The case happened almost 50 years ago, and I knew I shouldn't procrastinate. When I called his law firm to ask about getting an interview, I didn't know what to expect in regards to his condition, and I was told I'd have to wait for the interview because he was hiking in Big Bend at the time. We did set up an interview in his Austin office and spoke in a conference room. Also in this interview, Richards mentions his book. It's called Once Upon a Time in Texas, A Liberal in the Lone Star State. This is a great read. It has lots of amazing stories about his legal battles for civil rights. And there are also some fascinating anecdotes about his then wife, Ann Richards, and how they got into politics. So tell me, what kind of guy was Robinson? Well, he was thoroughly uh, committed on this issue. He was, as far as the African-American community, he was a, more like a businessman, if you're with me. He, worked, he struck me as a very gentle man. <laughs> and he's the one who first came up with the idea of, of the, the lawsuit because what they had done in drawing the county commissioner precinct, they had simply, I think, trifurcated the uh, black community. And he'd drawn a map showing it. It was sort of a haphazard map, but I can remember put, 
when I put him on the stand, I had to put Frank on to uh, create standing as the, you know, an aggrieved plaintiff. And I got him on the witness stand, and some question came up, and he began to pull out of his pocket. He had his suit on, his map, and I had to, uh, it's so funny, nobody, I got away with it. I said, Frank, put that back in your pocket. We don't want to look at your map. <laughs> he was quiet-spoken, thoroughly committed on the issue of civil rights for African Americans, and uh, that's sort of only how, I mean, that's how I knew him. Here's, what, here's the thing that's puzzling me. You don't mind me being puzzled? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, I've been trying to think through the t uh, timing here. This Fifth Circuit decision in Robinson came down in 1975, and it was favorable. And there would have been a redrawing of the county commissioner precincts in Anderson County. And the thing I can't remember is whether Robinson ran for it. I know that he, he was maybe considering running for city council, but he was fighting that fight when, he, when he, his life ended. Well, okay, that makes may make some sense. An old f friend of mine, a lawyer named Larry Daves, followed up on my win in the county commissioner's case and filed a, a lawsuit to create single-member districts for the uh, Palestine City Council and won that or settled that, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And that may have been, and I assume Robinson may have been a plaintiff in that case. Yes, he was. Okay. He just won that, and then like days later is when his life ended. Okay. That's the sequence then. Okay. So that's, you know, mm -hmm. part of the puzzle. You know, why would he kill himself? Right. Oh, no, I, I you know, the, or no one in the black community of Palestine ever thought it was anything other than a Klan assassination, I think, and they still think that. And I ran into someone within recent days who grew up there as a, you know, as a youngster. And she was telling me, of course, that was the, she grew up with that memory of being the feeling in the community when she grew up. And I guess Dorothy Robinson is long gone, I suppose, his wife. Oh, yeah. And she, of course, was a formidable figure, and I can't remember, you know, she was relatively high up in the educational system, and I'm not sure they were, in terms of African-American, black population of Palestine, they were very upper middle class in terms of income levels. And that's the interesting thing, is they lived, they didn't live in the black part of Palestine, which really, of course, there really was, the total black community was all in one place, and the Robinsons lived may have been on the fringes of it, but they lived in a very middle-class sort of environment. And there was a grade school, and their house kind of set up overlooking the uh, grounds of the grade school so that you drove up a driveway to their house, which was a little bit off the road, and you'd look down at basically the playground of the... Uh, of the school, which, as I remember, is a great school. This school, Story Elementary, plays a huge and pivotal role in the story and in the investigation into the death of Frank J. Robinson. There was a pack of boys playing football in that schoolyard on the day that Robinson died, and what they saw and what they heard, that's one of the biggest reasons why it's such a challenge to accept this suicide story. 
This thing about suicide. Well, no, okay, I'll get to that. Yes, I I don't know how much it's in my book and how much, but there was such an outrage in the com- black community over there that John Hill, who was then Attorney General, requested they convene a coroner's co- a jury and sent over a young lawyer named Anthony Sadbury to present the case. <laughs> I just checked because I thought Sadbury could be helpful to you. And damn, he's dead. I don't. <laughs> He's died too young, but uh, anyway, I was trying to check that out. All of this on my part was pro bono, of course. I wasn't getting paid anything, but uh, the Robinson, Mrs. Robinson wanted me to come over for that hearing. It's like an inquest? Yeah. There's procedure in in Texas law at the time. You could, an official, I guess, could order a jury trial on the issue of cause of death. So after Frank J. Robinson's death, there was a public inquest which is like a jury trial. This is a rare court proceeding in Texas. There's a six-person jury, and they get to decide, was it an accidental death, was it suicide, undetermined, or a murder? And with Frank J. Robinson, of these six jurors, two were black. This is a fact that some point to in order to absolve this process of perceived racism. Now, I find that to be superficial thinking, And it was no accident that there was black representation on the jury to order achieve that. The optics of an all-white jury could immediately impeach the outcome, which was after an hour and 10 minutes of deliberation that Frank J. Robinson's death was a probable suicide. Richards remembers the inquest as a farce. Miss Adbury and I represented the family. You know, we had a courtroom full of people, and uh, the county put on somewhat, we thought, bogus psychiatrist, I believe from the Rusk State Hospital, which was over there in that vicinity, and who testified that the pattern of Robinson's behavior was very indicative of a suicide, based on nothing any of us could figure out. But he had never actually examined him? Oh, he'd never seen him, I don't think. And then they put on a woman who was a bank teller where Robinson did business. She testified that he had been in that day, but as I recall, her testimony didn't point in any particular direction. He wasn't doing any last, you know, no suggestion of last minute preparations to go kill himself. And the most intriguing thing that happened, there was a family, a white couple there, who came to me and said that their son, who'd been in the grade school had seen something uh, that day and they wanted me to know that. And the son said that everybody knew where Robinson's house was. I said, they're on the playground, they look right up and it's just, uh, it's right there, visible. That he had seen a van drive up into the, he drove up a driveway well off the road and that a long haired hippie had gotten out of the van shortly before Robinson was killed and then drove off. And I was the thing, I guess, the most astonished by that a white couple in Palestine would be willing to bring their son forward. And we put him on the stand. I think he was probably eight or 10, I don't remember now, 10, 12 years old, I don't know. And he testified as to that event and seeing that. Let me clear up some of the facts here. The Robinson House was on a hill that overlooked Story Elementary, and according to newspaper reports and a Texas Rangers report, 
There were seven boys in the schoolyard, not that far from the house, and they were playing football. They all heard four gunshot blast, and some of the boys saw the van and two men driving up and then fleeing the scene, driving from the house at a high rate of speed. I started to track down some of these boys, and now, almost 50 years later, they have become men, and I didn't know what to expect. Uh, what would they remember? How could you remember something that happened on October 13th, 1976? What would you remember about a day in your life when you were 11 years old? Hi, may I speak to uh, James Allen, please? Hey, uh, Mr. Allen, my name is David Martin Davies, and I'm a reporter for Texas Public Radio. And I am looking into the death of uh, Frank J. Robinson in Palestine, Texas in 1976. And according to the Texas Rangers, uh, you and a bunch of other boys were playing football uh, in the field, and y'all heard something, and some of y'all saw something. And I'm just following up to um, see what y'all remember. And do, do you know what I'm talking about? Does this make sense? Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> Man, we're talking about something that happened 48 years, 47, 48 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I vaguely remember it, but I mean, I don't know what the details or anything. It's been too long ago. Okay, so do you know you don't remember seeing anybody at the at the Robinsons' house? Do you know who the Robinsons were? I don't remember the name. I'm, I remember where their house was across from the school deal there, but ah, shoot, man, I don't I don't remember that at all. Okay, and all the details and everything on it. All right, well, I'm just uh, checking up on things. I thought that was uh, been done, sealed up a long time ago. <laughs> well, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. I did manage to track down another one of the boys. And, of course, it sounds cool I tracked down, but actually it's just Googling over and over again and searching names and calling phone numbers and getting a lot of wrong numbers and calling some more. Hello? Hi, may I speak to Carlos, please? Uh, this is Carlos. Carlos, I'm a reporter. We're looking into the death of Frank J. Robinson. And so what do you remember about what happened that day? Well, it wasn't, it, it wasn't any suspicious activity going on. There was nothing going on. I remember me and my friends were all out on the playground. Well, actually, it wasn't a playground. Well, I guess you can call it a playground because it didn't have no jungle gyms or anything like that. So it was basically a football field, big field on the school, and the house there at the end of the road. And there was no suspicious activity that I noticed at the time because there's no vehicles uh, in and out of the place. All... All, all was was heard was gunshots. I don't remember it was one or two. I think it was just one shot. It, it, it was it was definitely a gunshot. And uh, because I don't think even Miss Robertson wasn't even there. I'm not sure. I think she might have been teaching at the time, or she had been. She was out of the house at the time. So I really don't. And that's basically all I re recall, you know, because uh, it did scare us, all, all the kids, because we really didn't know what was going on. And, and because a lot of my friends at the time were hunters. And myself, I wasn't a really hunter, so they know what a gunshot sounds like. And so do I, at the, because we were only like uh, 
what, 11 maybe? I think I was in the sixth grade or seventh grade at the time. You know, we never saw, I never saw the man. I didn't even know what he looked like really, you know, but the activity was, was minimum. I've never seen anybody over there at the, you know, except him and his wife coming in and out of the house, but during their, during the school time. But, you know, other than that, that's basically all I remember, you know, but we just heard a gunshot go off. And According to the uh, Texas Rangers report, oh, you were 12 years old at the time. And that you, uh, with your friends, playing football when you heard something like a shotgun blast four times, according to the report, at your testimony at the time. I mean, I'm sure it's been 48 years, almost 50 years. It's been a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I can understand how it's hard to zero in on the exact details. But does that sound right to you? It could have been four shots you heard. It could have been. I mean... You know, maybe he missed a few times. I don't know. I don't. It's hard. Like you said, 48 years ago, you know. I continued my pursuit. I kept calling, and I got hold of another one, another one of the boys. He had a lot more to say about that day. He had really good memories. And But then after we talked, he said, well, he didn't want me to use his name, even though the name is in the public record. And I don't want to make people's lives more complicated than they have to be. So, you know, I went along with that. I agreed. I'm not going to say his name, but I'm not going to be able to skip him completely because he has really important information. Got a couple of minutes. Want to talk about the death of Frank J. Robinson. I I don't know who Frank is. Well, um, remind me when uh, according to the text is this the is this the, is this the uh, african american gentleman that was murdered out by the one of the local schools we're not sure if he was murdered um, but well th- i testified in his murder trial so uh, he was murdered yeah well uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well he's uh, so frank j robinson was african american male he lived in a white house that overlooked story elementary uh, you're listed as one of the. I was a witness that I was a witness uh, in his in the trial against the uh, white supremacists. Yes. All right. Let me jump in here. I got to clarify. There was no trial. No one was ever arrested in connection to Frank J. Robinson's death. There was no white supremacist defendant. There was a public inquest to decide if Robinson's death was murder or suicide. And that, to an 11-year-old, could look like a trial from Perry Mason. And some of these boys did testify. They were on the witness stand, and they faced tough questioning. One of the lawyers pounded his hand on the table over and over again to demonstrate the gunshots and the pace of their firings. That would have been traumatic for any 11-year-old. And that's the funny thing about memory. Things get fuzzy, switched around. And there's no doubt about it, it's difficult to convince people that what they remember isn't exactly what happened. Now, I, I was, I was uh, 11 or 12 years old. I can't remember if it was the 6th or 7th grade, uh, but that's, that's, the, that's the school it was at. And a bunch of us had skipped lunch to go start playing football. And we saw a white van pull up. We, we, we all were kids of, kids of hunters. Uh, so I grew up hunting, and we know the sound of gunshots, and there was gunshots, and then people ran out, and we testified to that. I testified it, testified to it in court, along with several other students uh, in Anderson County, in county seat there for Palestine. 
Well, let me read what the sure. Tex- Texas Rangers have about you. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. At approximately 11 a.m. to 11.15 a.m., he stated at this time he heard what he thought to be boards falling down from the door. Yes, that's, that's exactly what I told him. Uh, but then we saw the people running out of the house. According to the Texas Rangers report, several of the seven boys who were interviewed saw a white man or two white men at the Robinson house, and they all heard four gunshots, shotgun blast. One of the boys, Michael Kevin Peterson, saw the white van coming out of the Robinson driveway, he says, really fast. He said the muffler was smoking really bad, and the van had a radio antenna mounted to the left front. He saw that the driver was a white male wearing a yellow shirt and had long brown hair down to his shoulders. The fact that these boys heard those four shotgun blasts, some saw men at the home, saw them fleeing the scene in that van, that says a lot. But there's a lot more. This casts so much doubt on the suicide explanation for Frank J. Robinson, but there is so much more, and we're going to get into that in the next episode of The Ghost of Frank J. Robinson from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, offering a world-renowned education at one of the lowest tuition rates in the state of Texas. Up to 98% of students receive financial aid. Application at becomeajaguar.com.